0: project big picture is something that's very recently come to public attention and i'm going to try and put it in the context of how english football has changed and the direction in which it might be going so there's a couple of key texts for this and i'll introduce you to those as we go and obviously there's no academic published material on something that's only just happened So this could not be more current and more contemporary. But we're going to focus on the big picture. And I'll basically outline what the key elements that have been suggested are. And then there'll be a bit of response and analysis and hopefully some discussion from yourselves. The first part of the session is based on my work with with Professor John Hewson, who's obviously a a prophet clan on the history of the Premier League in terms of its cultures, consumption and commerce. Uh, published in 2017 in the Richard Elliott's edited collection. And uh, before that was the, the 39th game uh, paper. Now, that was published in 2011, so obviously it's you'd think it's dated now, but that was shortly after the 39th game proposal was suggested. And there hasn't really been much else written on that, really because it was just a proposal and didn't happen. Now, what that demonstrates is that there's, it's, it's possible to have a... a a written published paper on something that doesn't happen and I didn't publish it hoping it would happen because I was not a a fan of the 39th game as a proposal which as you probably know was a proposal to have a round of Premier League matches played in eight cities globally so international consumption of a domestic league effectively and not just the consumption of it but the active participation in in the spectacle, if you like, in various cities around the world, most of which don't have globally significant football, soccer teams therein. So some some key developments in the football industry really, really quickly. We had a period in the 18th century where football that was kind of developed as a codified sport within the context of the English public schools became codified. The the FA was was established, depending on which historians you... You read 1863 is is often a date that's banded around in that context, although I'm not in the story. And the FA established, developed rules, formulated competitions, the FA Cup being the oldest uh, domestic competition in the world, uh, followed by the Football League, established in 1888, and that basic diet of knockout and then league format, which was basically copied throughout domestic leagues across the globe. Communities that already existed kind of set up their own football clubs and facilities were, were developed based around that so and when I when I talk about facilities really I'm talking about stadia uh, football grounds these these grounds were kind of built on a usually an ad hoc basis so if you wonder why English football kind of had four stands and kind of separate tiers it's because they were often built as money resources became available it's not until the kind of late modern era of English football where you've had purpose-built stadiums all built at the same time that can be this kind of circular bowl, which tends to kind of be fairly soulless places. You think of places with no disrespect to the clubs, like Southampton and Leicester. One really looks pretty similar to another, and it's only when you look at the kind of iconic stadiums that have been built gradually, Anfield, Old Trafford, Goodison Park, that kind of have that real sense of... ...kind of historical connection... ...and they're kind of dying out... ...and in the late 1900s... or the late... ...so the 1990s... ...one would say... ...kind of became... Uh, ...in many cases... ...unfit for... ...for purpose... ...from a safety point of view... ...but anyway... ...those competitions were established... ...in the 1920s... ...Hugo Marshall developed... ...the Metropa Cup... ...and... Uh, ...which was a kind of prequel... ...to what became the... ...what we now know as the Champions League... ...and the Europa League... ...which were the European Cup... ...and the Inter-Cities First Cup then the UEFA Cup and then Europa League and those two competitions as well as the now defunct Cup Winners' Cup were basically the European competitions um, and they've become increasingly lucrative and clubs who compete in those competitions have become increasingly powerful and there's a kind of dualism between the domestic game and the international game in that context for club football and that still exists today and it could be argued that what's proposed now does threaten the balance of that respect, and these competitions exists and these clubs exist really because cultures were built around them. So it became the done thing to go and watch your what you was primarily your local team play. And if you talk about from the 1860s, uh, 70s, and 80s up until around the 1960s, really the, the the diet and the consumption of football was, if you wanted to kind of know how your team got on, you you went to the game. And perhaps you could see what newspapers might write the following day, or when radio broadcasting come in, you could follow it that way. And then eventually televised matches. We went to pay-per-view and then eventually kind of online streaming of matches. So the broadcasting has evolved, which has enabled the evolution of course of the the principal consumers of football. So in sport business management context, we can we can refer to fans as Consumers and customers, even though fans typically don't don't like that. Uh, my season ticket at Liverpool used to have uh, f- a fan card number, and then that was changed to customer number. And you know, one of the responses of, of Liverpool fans and and you know supporters groups like uh, Spinecock 1906, was to have banners saying you know fans, not customers. So how you frame fans is is important. Now the wages of players uh, was significant in the early days. Um, professionalisation was ratified in the 1890s. There was a salary cap uh, introduced in the late 1890s and that was set at £4 a week. And when it was abolished in 1960, due uh, in part to the kind of pioneering work of those who were against it, players like Jimmy Hill, the salary cap had only risen to £20 a week. And that really meant that the kind of culture of of players was very similar to the culture of fans. So up until the 1960s, you had a game where The people who watched it and people who played it were kind of from pretty similar backgrounds. And when they made it, they kind of stayed within a relatively similar economic and class bracket. And the consumption of the sport changed from the 1960s onwards with the introduction of of leisure and leisure time. So it it became possible for supporters to get off a bit earlier on a Saturday and, and go away from home for the first time to watch their team. And they would often do so to relatively local places, so Liverpool fans going to Manchester uh, for games against United and City. And and this would invariably be problematic for the fans sometimes for police and kind of control mechanisms that that existed because there just simply wasn't the infrastructure around to police football fans at the time that were going to travel. And this meant a real shift in the understanding of, of how to manage crowds And when fans would would travel They would typically travel together Perhaps for support There might be a few drinks on the train They would travel by train There was that infrastructure So when English fans would travel to Away grounds And they'd turn up And uh, they couldn't go to an away section Because that didn't exist So what happened over time Was that there was segregation Introduced to combat some of the problems Around two sets of supporters In the same ground Supporting opposing teams And what would would typically happen before all this happened was that away fans would get into a home end and perhaps celebrate a goal or there would be a chance and then there'd be like a confrontation and then in terraced areas where you could move more freely, you could kind of run an end and run backwards towards each other and there were kind of pitch battles that were fought on the terraces themselves. So Leisure Time really transformed the culture of, of English football but it also uh, created the, the dynamics for the escalation of violence through the... The segregation of fans. So, this didn't happen in other sports, you know, rugby union, cricket, that, that doesn't happen. And, and some could argue, well, is it a different demographic of people watching it? Well, rugby league, they didn't segregate supporters. And it, it might be said that there's a similar kind of class basis of, of football and rugby league fans historically. And so, that being the case, maybe the segregation has in fact contributed to some of the, the problems around fan disorder and the hooliganism that kind of developed from the 1960s onwards. So disorder, which is a kind of more of an umbrella term, uh, which might, according to the legislation that's around in the UK at the moment, that might include things like pitch invasions and ticket touting, uh, but the, the violence um, wing of disorder, if you like, might be referred to as, as hooliganism, which is a contested term in itself. There's no legal definition uh, of a football hooligan, and there's there's plenty of key works that uh, people like Jeff Pearson um Cliff Start and others have have produced. From the 1980s onwards, we had a number of key tragedies, and these helped to to revolutionise cultures and communities and consumption and the organisation of the sports generally. So we had the Bradford Fire in May 1985, and then a few weeks later, the Hazel Tragedy, and then four years later, we had the Hillsborough Disaster. So the Bradford Fire had a match between Bradford City and Lincoln City. The former were celebrating the Third Division Championship and what's, what's likely to have been the cause of the tragedy is a discarded cigarette from an, an unsuspecting fan in one of the stands, kind of slipped beneath the floorboards and underneath this wooden structure was a pile of rubbish that hadn't been cleared and should have been, which caused a fire to light and many of the people who tried to escape were burnt to death. Um, 56 fans uh, were killed at Valley Parade that day in May. And some tried to escape and couldn't get out of the locked turnstiles. And the turnstiles were locked as a security measure. Now what enabled people to escape and the reason why only 56 died is that people could come onto the pitch because there was no fencing in front. And after the second tragedy in that month, which was the Heisel disaster, Lord Justice Papwell produced a report And one of the recommendations for that was the introduction of fences at the front of terraced uh, sections to prevent pitch invasions, which was um, a problem, although not a solution, um, as was later revealed. So the Heisel tragedy took place at the 1985 European Cup final between Liverpool and Juventus, and 39 Italian fans uh, were killed after a problem in their terraces, now, UEFA have a notion of neutrality in European football and that they continue to this day for European finals sell tickets in neutral sections, uh, which isn't always a good idea when you think of the concept of neutrality and, and football supportership, particularly when it really matters at a kind of European final. And there was plenty of fans guilty of conduct on that day, which led to some being arrested, some saved prison sentences there has been criticism of how the authorities have, have dealt with that but the stadium was also unfit for purpose it was 60 years old and it proved unable to withstand what proved to be a fatal stampede of of liverpool fans and other fans kind of connected with with liverpool and and english supporters on the day towards what was a family section behind the goal and the retreating fans who weren't used to this kind of conduct on a, on a weekly basis at matches retreated and a a wall collapsed and and fans fell on each other. And as a result of that, there was a five-year ban imposed on on all English clubs, which effectively saw the demise of of the English game at a period where English clubs had been completely dominant, winning all but one European Cup from 1977 up to that final in, in 1985, with real dominance on the international scene. And it took a long time for English football to recover in its reputation, and and in its kind of infrastructure as well, and also in the performance of its leading clubs, and the names of those kind of changed over time a little bit, and then the the Hillsborough disaster, which really revolutionised English football in terms of of the legacy of of that ninety six Liverpool fans were killed due to a variety of, of reasons, which I'll I'll go over briefly connected to the. The FA Cup semi final against Nottingham Forest in 15th April in, in Sheffield that day, the home of Sheffield Wednesday. And Liverpool fans had been given a smaller uh, area of the ground, despite the fact they had more fans than, than Nottingham Forest. Uh, there were problems between, um, I suppose, the, the police and supporters outside of, of the ground because th- there wasn't sufficient areas for people to enter the ground. So fans would turn up and there were long queues and there was kind of almost crushing against the turnstiles, and Duchenfield, who was the police inspector on, on in, in charge that day, who'd only been on the job for six weeks and didn't have the experience for for a job of that magnitude, made a number of very serious uh, key errors. Um, so the allowance of fans um, in, so the the, the the gates were open and fans. Came in to the ground, but they weren't directed into pens that were empty. And what tends to happen is when you go into a terrace, and when I was a kid going into terraces, this is what happened: you'd go, as you'd get as central as you can and as close to the goal. So the already overcrowded pens, and a pen is where the terrace is split into sections, so you stop the um, the latitudinal movement of supporters. I mean, and a pen, you know, we think of a pen as being what, how we treat cattle, which is how English football fans were treated during the 1980s and 70s. So by not being diverted off until the wider pens, the central pens became overfull, and because of Popwell's report, which made that recommendation after the Bradford fire and Heysel disaster, that perimeter fencing should be introduced around the perimeter of the pitch. The fans um, who died at Hillsborough were, in many cases, crushed to death um, against these fences, and even though the Many of them were able to get out. The only one ambulance that arrived on, on scene was able to access the, the pitch. So it was found that the security operation and the safety of supporters was, was just not fit for purpose. So it wasn't just the infrastructure, the facilities, it was the, the crowd management, the tactics, it wasn't fit for, for purpose. And the number of tragedies can be seen around the world. And that one in particular, English football, helped to, to change English football. ...and you know, well beyond the, the collective memory of Liverpool fans... ...because the Taylor report that was produced after that... ...made 76 recommendations, the most important... ...of which was the move to all-seated facilities... ...and that created um, a whole new dynamic for English football. Um, it was expensive to do, clubs had to raise money... ...they wanted to marginalise tennis culture... ...and um, as a result of these official reports the the infrastructure was went through a period of of evolution, so how football was consumed by fans changed dramatically, and how clubs themselves operated changed dramatically after Hillsborough. From a player's point of view, uh, the Bosman case during the mid nineteen nineties was significant in that it enabled the, the the free movement of of players out of contract uh, across Europe. So. It basically found EU legislation as it existed to be kind of at odds with, with football and regulations. So it enabled this kind of transnational, lubricated transfer market within Europe. And at the same time, clubs were revamped. The European Cup became the Champions League. There were group stages introduced which guaranteed minimum revenues across a number of games. So we didn't just go into the European Cup as thinking you might have one game or maybe one more you could predict and you could therefore budget and you could therefore sign players on the basis that you would get X amount of money at least for that season and the broadcasting changed in English football with the move of pay-per-view TV and subscription TV through Sky Sports notably uh, which also helped to to revolutionise English football so we've talked uh, recently about Operation Big Picture and plans to change English football which is the biggest in a generation and the last notable proposal were those that led to the formation of the Premier League in 1992. So stadiums developed and one of the goals really, even though it was not always communicated, at least uh, beyond the walls of, of boardrooms, was to to marginalise terrorist culture and to eradicate hooliganism, uh, which never really kind of happened, and both kind of prevail to, to different degrees at different clubs, and also to change the demographic of supporters, to Create the the dynamics where football hooligans felt that they they couldn't really fight. To change and dilute the demographic was in part the approach that was taken. So the commercialisation of of football kind of accelerated from the 1990s, and Man United clearly led the way. And other clubs that were big clubs, if you like, were were far less successful in capitalising on their own commercial potential. So Liverpool, a counterpoint to Man United in that respect. So Shirt Sponsorship, which came in really from the, the late 1970s, Liverpool's Hitachi Shirt Sponsorship, was, was the first seen in the top level of English football and many others followed. And merchandising became more diverse and more lucrative as football became a more commodified sport that was marketed in different ways, which has now led to a kind of a global tourism industry connected to to football in dominant leagues, such as La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, Ligue 1, and, of course, the Premier League. So, the 39th game proposal, which was significant, significance, introduced in, in February of 2008. So, this this paper was, was written shortly after, but not eventually published until 2011. And that was about having a round of matches to be played in different parts of the world. Now, there were Response of fans who generally don't have a strong collective voice was vehement in its disagreement. And the, the timing of that was interesting. And for, probably from the Premier League's point of view, it was too early. And they've decided to kind of pull back from that and basically wait for other leagues to to do the dirty work for them. So it's, it's really common for American leagues. We have the NFL games played at Wembley, season games played across continents. There are clubs you play across across continents. You, know, you think of Canadian teams in, in rugby league, etc. So it's, it's become pretty common in, in sports where you don't have a massive network of, of clubs. So it doesn't necessarily translate to football and particularly not to English football. If you look at the, the top league in La Liga and perhaps the one below, it's a strong league with a high level of, of player and performance and, and, and financial Possibilities, but the lower you go down the tiers in Spain, it, you know, it becomes regionalised pretty quickly. So it was considered more possible to to have an approach in Spain, whereby you could have season games being played abroad, and there was a suggestion there that Barcelona Athletic Madrid would play in in Miami last season, and there was objections to that, so that didn't. That didn't happen in the end. And one of the reasons why it might happen in Spain first is because they don't have a culture of away support that I just covered in that period that developed from the 1960s onwards in the UK. In fact, I remember going to Barcelona in 2001 in the UEFA Cup semi-final. And the the home game of that, Barcelona only brought 500 fans. We only got roughly the same number of tickets away. There was no culture of away support in Spain. And the Champions League really has changed that. But only for Champions League games. So the last game I went to in Spain was the end of the season before last, as a domestic fixture, and it was Atletico Madrid away from home, and they had about 40 fans, maybe. So it's not common to go away from home. So you're less likely to have resistance from from two sets of fans for one game in Spain than you are in England. So I I still think it will happen. You will have have fixtures being played. The, the Spanish kind of Super Cup was played in Saudi Arabia in January. The typical process is to have perhaps smaller games. So it's been talked about having the League Cup as as a potential summer competition played in places around the world. And there is certainly appetite from those with commercial interests to move matches abroad. And I I think that's inevitable unless it's fought successfully from fan organisations. So the current state of play, England has the, the largest network of professional clubs. It's got five tiers of clubs, the Premier League, Championship League 1, League 2 and the National League and then only with the tiers below that National League North and South does it become regionalised I know there's been some changes to, the, to competitions this year because of trying to restrict travel over Covid but that's a, a first really and there's there's significant economic gulf that exists not just between those divisions but also within it so what Man City can spend on a full-back might be what another Premier League can spend on a squad for instance over over a some period and the reliance on revenue streams has really changed so they, it used to be English football basically what came through the turnstiles was, was what you had to spend really and it took a long time for that reality to, to shift and for the economic potential to be realised more fully and in the kind of 10 years pre-Covid that changed a lot, you had an increasing amount of money being made basically from the global uh, broadcasting contracts to the point where the, the ratio between what the Premier League make from, from global broadcasters compared to domestic broadcasters in, in, in England that used to be like that and, and it's really shifted the other way. And I think the future of broadcasting of English football matches... The, the focus is not what's made from the UK market. And what does that do? Well, it shapes prioritisation. A match recently, um, I saw a tweet, it was a Leicester City match, and their social media team tweeted the, the time zones that the game was kicking off. of clubs will do that. So you know, right where I live, this is the time. And there was a kind of map of, of the world because there's global consumption of of all Premier League teams. So the, the Premier League and, and the Championship and League One and League Two there's a, a different level of reliance on match day revenues. Now, that doesn't mean to say that clubs like Liverpool will, will say, well, we're not going to rely on match day income. I mean, the opposite, in fact. Liverpool opted against the move out of, of Anfield and decided instead to redevelop the, the main stand. So, of the four stands now, remember I talked about that process of building as you make the money? Well, that's still in, in operation now. The Centenary stand was built in 92, the Cop in 94, the Anfield Road in 98 which will be rebuilt and the main stand was only opened uh, three or four seasons ago. So there is a real desire and demand from uh, club officials to have an an, an increase in income from matchday revenues. So the bigger the ground, basically the more money that you can make, the more fans come in and spend more money on a diverse range of of merchandise and items, the more money can be made. And with Financial Fair Play, which is supposed to regulate what a club can spend relative to what it earns, that becomes increasingly significant, even though financial fair play is coming to question, given how Manchester City were able to overturn their two-year ban last year. But the further you go down the pyramid, you, you rely more heavily on, on gate income, because you're not on the telly very often, League One and League Two. So the broadcasting deals really are are much less significant in that respect. So there's, there's definite friction between clubs, and weaknesses within that model. And we've seen COVID as being a prime example of how that has been manifest, because the entire industry is based on people being able to beat at football matches. And one of the reasons English football is so popular isn't just because of the performances on the pitch, the fact that Aston Villa, who stayed up in the last minute of last season, are able to score seven past the champions Liverpool, who have lost four games in two years before that day means that there's that uncertainty of outcome which is so central to the excitement of English football and fans going to matches creating the spectacle the atmosphere is, is part of why people will save up for years and and do a kind of pilgrimage to Old Trafford or Anfield or wherever their team play and Covid has really put a halt on all that and we don't know how long that will last for I mean, there's currently a hashtag going round Twitter of let fans in on whether that will happen or not. I was one of the people who was very critical of the British government for allowing matches to, to still take place in March because of the coronavirus. You know, wrote a number of pieces for broadsheets and was on the TV and radio voicing that concern. So I can't then be someone who would support an early return of fans in stadiums. Although if you've you you did not get COVID yourself and you, you think it's blown out of proportion a little bit and you think it's outdoors, maybe people, supporters of some clubs, are, are are more persuasive in their in their arguments or more persuaded by arguments of others about having fans back into ground. But the point is that COVID has basically disrupted the entire model and it's created huge potential financial problems. There's only so long that certain football clubs can continue to exist. In a COVID context, now Kieran Maguire, who's an expert in football finance at the University of Liverpool, you know, he said uh, yesterday, you know, people have been negotiating this deal. When we talk about this deal, talking about a project, big picture, uh, it's been negotiated for the last three years. So it's not a response to COVID, but it's been it's been coming. And, and COVID has been a Trojan horse. So it's basically the opportunity to have a number of these. How do we want to change football? And I, I also think that. The, the water breaks that were introduced in the summer resumption of the Premier League in June and July, I think they were probably less about hydration and more about opportunities for advertisement breaks. And I think it was a bit of a tester in that respect. It was sold as hydration, health and safety, player welfare. But I think really coming especially from an American market where they're not used to having 45 to 50 minutes without an advert break and they're more comfortable with quarters, in their sporting matches and where you have a situation where you can have advert breaks more more easily. And I think also the, the handshake that happened before the Premier League, that wasn't really about solidarity. It was it was about when can they make the most money effectively for clubs and broadcasters? but well, it's just before the game starts. So let's have a round of, of handshakes, just enough time for a couple of adverts, a lot of money being made and then we'll go straight into the game. So always think when there's a, a change to how sports is Consume, play, produce. Always think of of the economic motives and the incentives behind it. So Project Big Picture was a plan drawn up initially by FSG that began with the owners of Liverpool beginning in, in 2017. And big clubs wanting to exploit the value of their international TV rights. And really, these proposals would give them the power to do that. So how did the media respond? You know, this was something that was, was introduced in a piece by The Telegraph on a a Sunday, and the following day, Martin Samuel from the the Daily Mail called it, you know, a disgusting big six power grab. The Times referred to it as clever and highly cynical act of misdirection. The Telegraph said it was a hostile takeover spun as a rescue package, and David Connor, the Guardian, was a bit more perhaps positive and measured, and he said, you know, the negative reaction seems bizarre. And it was quite forceful, and you did have quite a polarised response to this in the first few days and Paul Widdup who's a, a sport business scholar very highly regarded current chair of the football collective he argued that those who believe that this project big picture won't in the end widen the inequality to the point of structural change in football severely underestimated the power of capitalism to divide and the motives of capitalists from Delaware So it isn't just about thinking what is it like for my club and how does my club compete against other clubs. It's more thinking about the people who who run football, who own football clubs, what are their motives, what are their projections, what are their intentions and how do they want to change the sport. And this picture of a meal between key owners from Arsenal, Liverpool and Man United just shows that these kind of conversations, these meetings do go on between the upper echelons you know you imagine a Man United and Liverpool fan going off for tea doesn't wouldn't really happen would it but certainly at a, a level of, of of kind of directors boardroom type level obviously those conversations can happen despite the fact that they're the rivals on the pitch so I'm going to go through the details of of the big picture I'm going to present it in the order that the, that was presented in in the Daily Telegraph which you might not have seen it was behind the paywall so there's no analysis in this it's just a presentation of of how they they presented the order in which it was it was given and then a little bit of analysis and discussion around um, a few tweets that I put out which tried to kind of join a few issues and proposals up together so the, the first one was about a rescue fund that's a term that's been been taken up by some journalists obviously as i just mentioned so an immediate rescue fund of 350 million to the English Football League and Football Association for lost revenues of last season and this season and for the EFL, which is Championship Leagues 1 and 2. £50 to cover the 1920 losses and up to 200 available to cover this season's losses because we don't quite know what that will be and we don't know whether this season will be able to be completed. I think the lower down the level, the harder that will be. Nations League, international football players going away, coming back with COVID, taking COVID with them. It's pretty difficult to have everything at once, which football seems intent on doing Champions League, Nations League, domestic competitions, leagues, etc. So, money will be advanced to the EFL from, from increased future revenue. So, for the FA, 100 million in grants, up to 55 million to cover operational losses, 25 million for clubs below the EFL which is National League and below, and £10 for the Women's Super League and Championship and £10 for grassroots funds to be made available by the Premier League through loans guaranteed by the clubs. And then the infrastructure plan, which was a funding of 6% of the gross Premier League revenue, so you quite often hear that phrase, the gross revenues in the Premier League, to be distributed annually to the top four divisions, which is the old Football League. Premier League, Championship League 1, League 2 and each club to receive £100 per seat annually so it will depend on the, not the size of the the, the fan base but the size of the stadium uh, the infrastructure fund that can only be used for stadia and fan experiences and then a fan charter which was kind of thrown in the middle here with a cap of £20 on a away <laughs> tickets adjusted every three years for inflation which is the, the current approach or has been pre-Covid uh, subsidised away travel which was typically for the clubs to do and didn't happen very often safe standing sessions uh, to be at the discretion of each club and subject to government permission so the reason that I put this in the context of the Taylor report and the Hillswood tragedy and the, the developments of, of English football was so we could have a discussion around that which you will a bit later on uh, waste sections, which must p- provide at least 3,000 or 8% of capacity, whichever is higher, which is a massive change. We'll talk about that. And then a focus on annual good causes. So an increase of 66% uh, in annual contributions to good causes in England, and a total of 5% of this gross income to be contributed annually to good causes and grassroots football to include combat and discrimination, racism. The redistribution of media and sponsorship revenues. There's three possible options put out. First, 50% equal, 25% current year merit and 25% three-year merit. with the great emphasis placed on merit in both the Premier League and the Championship with half of payments reflecting positions over the last four years. Second option, the current Premier League distribution scheme which is 50% equal and 25% by merit and 25% by facility fees. Uh, But newly promoted clubs must hold back £25 of the first two years in the Premier League to mitigate the risk of relegation. Uh, Often we talk about parachute payments, which is part of this deal, the removal of those. Um, Current Premier League distribution scheme, newly promoted, this is the third option, newly promoted clubs receive uh, 25% of their allocated facility fees for the first three years in the league. And for all those three options, excluding parachute payments and including new infrastructure payments, solidarity from the Premier League to the English Football League would increase from 4% to a whopping 25%. So the Premier League and the English Football League domestic and international media rights will be collectively sold by the Premier League, which is what the Premier League currently do. It's not happened in, in all leagues. For, for instance, in Italy, it doesn't happen or hasn't always happened in, with Syria. Compensation payments to uh, the EFL and the FA with uh, with infrastructure monies and related borrowings deducted prior to the determination of distributable revenues. And then the pyramid structure, the Premier League, originally formed to house 18 clubs, would be reduced from 20 to 18 clubs. Um, so the, the Premier League uh, was actually uh, bigger than that, went down to 20, and the proposal is to make that to 18, just to clarify that. Uh, Point there. I've copied and pasted this from the Telegraph by the way. I haven't altered it. Uh, This would free up the calendar and with fewer teams, and then to parachute payments provide additional resources to the EFL. That's the argument there. So the reduction from 38 to 34 rounds of matches so you lose two teams, you lose four games per club will also aid the national team, which is often a contentious issue and has been uh, recently over the National League and whether Harry Kane should play for England or not having just come back from, from injury etc The Championship League 1 and League 2 to all be made of, up of 24 clubs that's a reduction of what was the 92 uh, to the 90 and in terms of promotion and relegation the relegation at least 2 clubs promoted from the Premier League of course there's currently 3 uh, Championship the 1st and 2nd place teams to be promoted but a kind of change to the, the relegation and promotion system it's a bit of a copy of the German model in that there's a playoff. So the club finishing 16th in the Premier League to join the four-team championship playoff tournament for the final Premier League place with teams who finish third, fourth, and fifth in the championships. So uh, the semi-finals would be uh, 16th place Premier League team versus fifth place championship team and third place versus the fourth place. So in League One, the promotion of three clubs and the relegation of four clubs on the same number of relegated in League 2, but four promoted in League 2. So in terms of club media, all Premier League clubs have the exclusive rights to sell eight live matches a season directly to fans. Just the beginning is what you must have as an asterisk there. Buy their own digital platforms in all international territories. And all Premier League and Championship clubs allowed to show limited in-match highlights on their own digital platforms, which has so far been prohibited. Uh, no more than 27 games per club will be shown live in the UK per season so my brother who lives in the States can watch every Liverpool game broadcast live but there's a blackout of Saturday games in this country and has been for decades and that is to enable football league clubs to have revenues protected really because if you could watch Premier League clubs at 3 o'clock on a Saturday you might be less inclined to go and watch your, your local team play lower down the league And Saturday 3 pm broadcast blackouts to remain, obviously to protect the EFL attendance, which is what I've basically just said. So, all the competitions, the League Cup and the Community Shield to be discontinued. Now, the League Cup was established in the the 60s, but the the, the Charity Shield, or now known as the Community Shield, and has been for a a long time, even though old people like me still forget and go to the Charity Shield to be be discontinued. um, And that has long been a fixture. A key element of the... It's basically the curtain raiser of the English League where the FA Cup winners play the league champions each year. So the establishment of a new independent league for the women's professional game and uh, not to be on by the Premier League or the Football Association. FA Cup replays to be retained but there'll be no replays in the winter break. The Premier League begins later in August and the pre-season friendlies to be extended and that is a key element there that we'll look at no more than two weeks between the end of the Premier League and the Champions League final which is fairly fairly common uh, practice pre-Covid anyway and the Premier League clubs must participate at least once in every five years in the Premier League summer tournament which for everyone looking at this will be like oh what's that and then we refer to things like the 39th game proposal. Other structural changes the elite player performance Uh, Plan funding is is included in the revenue received by EFL clubs. Clubs in League One and below no longer required to have an academy. Clubs permitted to have up to 15 players out on loan domestically at any time, including up to four in a single English club. The introduction of one month loan for players under 23 and ability to recall loanees in the event of managerial change incentivise loaning clubs through payments based on future performance or sale of loan players. So a number of changes in that respect and uh, people like uh, Jules Ward, who's, um, who's a former former flatmate of mine and I worked in the States with him and studied with him, who's Liverpool's loans and Pathway manager, which is a pretty unique role, although there'll be more of them to come. He would certainly have read this with interest. That limitation to have only... Four clubs, you know, players at one club does mean that you can't really have that feeder club situation um, domestically, and to only have fifteen players out on loan domestically. I think a key word there is domestic. The situation that that Chelsea have had with with the Tesserano, where you can loan a nu- you know basically a, a number of players to one club, can still happen internationally. The cost controls and and related party income, so financial fair play rules. To align with UEFA to ensuring those clubs are not at a disadvantage in Europe, 50 million per cap, annum on all related party transactions, and a more stringent related party definition. The Premier League executive provided with full access to clubs' accounting information to investigate cost control, and a joint Premier League and Championship body to monitor cost controls. Historically, there hasn't always been great communication. Uh, and even collaboration between the Premier League and the Championship and the EFL uh, because they're two separate bodies. So it's almost inevitable that the split of oh, the Football League with the Premier League becoming independent from 1992 onwards has led to some of those problems over time, depending on who's in charge of the respective organisations. Uh, and interestingly, Rick Paddy, who's the current EFL chairman, was the, not only Liverpool's uh, CEO, he was previously in the Premier League. Uh, equivalent as well, so an experienced man in that position who probably understands both parties, although not necessarily uh, popular everywhere he's been. We'll leave that for another time. The, the the English Football League to introduce hard salary caps, so no talk of that in the Premier League, but uh, an introduction of that in Football League and all material matters relating to the business of the Premier League will now require shareholder approval, except that the board will decide whether to approve a new owner, and all votes will remain more than two-thirds majority to be approved. All other votes for the operation of the Premier League will be one club, one vote, except those provided for under special voting rights. And those special voting rights, each of the nine clubs here at any time of determination have been long members of the Premier League, continuously for more seasons than other clubs will be considered a long-term shareholder. So there are certain clubs that are listed in, in that concept and two-thirds of the long-term shareholders can cause to be adopted but without approval from other clubs. Number one, the election or removal of the CEO and or member of the board. Number two, amendments to cost control rules and regulations. And number three, contracts for the sale of league broadcasting and media rights. Two-thirds of the long-term shareholders can prevent from being adopted resolutions two, Firstly, they change the distribution rights of the sponsorship, commercial and broadcasting rights sold centrally. Secondly, change the distribution to clubs from Premier League centralised rights or assets and see alter it in a, in a material way in the nature of the competition with two thirds of long term shareholders able to veto the Premier League's board approval of a proposed new owner. So I know that was a bit of a, a mouthful but I wanted to kind of present it in the way that it had been uh, presented in that piece in the Daily Telegraph. So my tweet that came from this, I've chosen to focus on particular areas. Now, if you were a coach or if you worked in coach education, what might have sprung to mind from that might have been the Triple P. If you're interested in the women's game primarily, you might be interested in a new independent body and league, independent from the Premier League and the FA. And if you are Jules Ward, you might be interested in the loan system and others like him if you're a broadcaster you're interested in those kind of arguments so depending on what club you support or work for or your general level of interest in the game it might shape how you would analyze what's been presented and also what you focus on and to do everything was probably a PhD never mind a a two-hour lecture so I'm going to focus really on on a few of these elements in some kind of coherent order I hope. So the first thing I said was was that it it proposes the biggest shake-up to English football in a generation, which was the line that the Telegraph themselves used. And it's true. I don't think that can be argued with. The Premier League certainly will be critics of this plan. Many clubs have have presented their lack of support and their disliking of it in, in, in different degrees. I mean, there's comments being associated with West Ham that have that have done that recently. So there have been several economic adjustments that have, that have been made um, and there are colleagues at Sheffield Hallam University, uh, Rob and, and Dan who are some of those who will I'm sure add some layers of meaning to those as, as well as colleagues at the Football Industries Group at the University of Liverpool. Um, but some of those have included uh, the changes to the rescue payments or the the structure of those payments, how long they might go on for, the infrastructure funding and grants, which to include the EPPP, uh, the new professional uh, women's league, which wasn't really given a great deal of funding for, given that that's probably going to be a real growth area uh, over the next 10 years. If you look at other, other kind of domestic leagues and the European league in and, and other countries, the English league still has a long way to go. And some other highlights. So an 18-team Premier League, first of all. Now I've actually been a supporter of this for for a long time. I think there's there's too much football in the Premier League for the Premier League season, and that's that's if you've got rid of of certain areas of of the League Cup, like you don't have extra time and then penalties. Um, you know the games used to all be two-legged, and now it's only the semi-final. Um, semi-final going to a single leg, and eventually it's it's basically talking in the direction of the death of of the league cup, which is what it's been proposed here. But if you have eighteen teams, I think you're at an advantage over teams that have twenty in European competition. Four games fewer is is an advantage. So if you look at different uh, countries and whether they you know, the number of of teams that play uh, in those you know the top tier of, of the league, it can have an impact in that respect. The the potential to only have two relegated, that moves towards a little bit less competition between the the Premier League and the EFL in terms of you know the ability to be promoted. I mean, it, it makes it harder to go up basically because you've got a, a Premier League team that that goes into into the into the pot if you like, into the mix to to maintain in their case status as a Premier League club. But I still think that generally that's quite a good idea. The Bundesliga playoffs are quite exciting, and I mean I remember when the playoffs were introduced and, and there was some criticism of those. But it was a kind of time pre pre late modernity of footballers to use Kevin Dixon's term. And I would would probably argue that if the playoffs were introduced as an idea now, there'd be loads of criticism. You know, you can't change the game and. You know, it's against tradition and all this. And and some changes are good for the game. And people might have their own opinion on that. But I actually think that 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 might be a a good idea. And because the Bundesliga have done it and because it worked fairly well in Germany, there tends to be a situation where the German football authorities and clubs let the English make the mistakes and then they avoid them, as Bayern Munich have, have a banner in English. Uh, most of their games which says this ain't no Premier League Um, it's a reminder of of that fact and the fact that their season ticket costs about a tenth of what mine does (laughs) maybe not a tenth but certainly an eighth will add weight to that particular argument so clubs having the right to sell um, eight matches directly I I think this is just the beginning what clubs really want to be able to do is have their own bargaining power and when I say clubs I mean the elite level clubs that would sell. So if if you are a Norwich City who just got promoted to the Premier League or a Bournemouth who were there for a number of years or a Wigan, for you, if we're honest, the success is being a Premier League club. Now Wigan might say, oh, we won the FA Cup. Okay, I'm not trying to belittle anyone uh, in terms of their ambitions or status as a club, but people in China weren't supporting Wigan. They were watching Wigan play Man United and Wigan get money Accordingly, you see, you see the, the relationship there. So it's, it's being a Premier League club, really, is, is really lucrative. And But for Man United, they're lucrative because they're Man United and, and they play in the Premier League. So depending on the club's ambitions and status and, and economic models, there will be a different kind of take on this. But obviously, a proposal led by Liverpool and Man United, there is definitely a appetite to have direct sale to fans via their own digital platforms, and this is, is proof of that. And eight is for me, just just get to get the ball rolling. And I think once you open that door, the floodgates can open, and that's what the Premier League will be worried about. The Saturday three pm blackout to remain. I've chatted with, with Professor Pete Millwood about this. Um, we did our PhDs together, and and you know Pete might say that you know it's it's kind of unthinkable that really that could continue. In the modern climate, uh, you know he's a Wigan fan um, as well, by the way, and he would he would like it to continue as a Wigan fan that, that play in, in League One uh, uh, currently. Now, fans will have different opinions on this, but I think as someone who's been to every ground in England to watch football, I would definitely be a supporter of the, the Saturday three o'clock blackout remaining. It does mean that my brother in Portland, Oregon. Can watch a Saturday three o'clock game legally on TV, and I can't. But so be it. Uh, the League Cup and the Chelsea Shield to go. Now the League Cup really uh, took time to become considered to be a kind of serious competition. It was established in the early nineteen sixties, and you know I say that as a fan of a club that's won the most of those, and it, it's always been the kind of secondary competition uh, domestically. It's always played second fiddle. To other competitions, and you know, if you if you look at what Liverpool have won in the last past couple of years, it's been quite impressive relative to what they've they won in the decade, or so before that. And if you go to their training ground, you'll see uh, paintings of the of the the four competitions: the Champions League trophy, the Premier League trophy, the FA Cup, and the League Cup. So it's for the players to say this, and these are our targets. And they've won, if you like, the big two but if you look at the kind of who plays for Liverpool in league cup games is the league cup a priority for the manager well certainly last season the premier league and champions league were the priorities and the the FA cup and the, the league cup were really used to to blood players to give players opportunities to play so i think that if i you know if you're a premier league manager of a club like liverpool you may you may want the The League Cup really to give your your side an opportunity to to try different systems, to try new players, to bring new players in, especially from from youth teams. And you know, Alexander Arnold playing playing against Leeds United in the League Cup, and then you know becoming a regular eventually. So, a lots of debuts of Premier League players, homegrown and made in the League Cup. So, if you remove that, then where do these players get their opportunities? So, there is. Some understandable concern there, despite the fact that you know if you win the league Cup, I mean Tottenham Hotspur have won two league cups since 1991 and that's it, so they will remember very fondly those two tournaments and those two successes, and that isn't to have a pop at tottenham and, and, and what they've won or haven't it's it, merely to say that for some clubs a league cup is is massive, and just to to remove that as a possibility really i don't think would speak for the the overall kind of collective. Now, one of the concerns with the League Cup is that the the money you get for winning it is is really not not much. So, if you have that problem with with that and the FA Cup, then you're never really going to have a a sustainable competition. So, it was faced with the reality of of either changing its model so you make it more lucrative. You know, if the FA Cup winners, for instance, got the fourth Champions League place. All of a sudden, the FA Cup becomes a far more viable competition for for clubs who are positioned in the kind of top half of the table, but below the, the, the top three, if you like. So, the FA Cup is not being put under pressure. But if the League Cup went, who knows what would happen? And the Charity Shield, really, which is is really again more about tradition. Um, I mean, Liverpool have lost the last two on penalties, and well, the response of the players was. Okay, there was disappointment, but it was more of a shrug of the shoulders in comparison to losing the Champions League final or losing the Premier League and the last game of the season, which Liverpool had have done in two of the last three years. So the response of players to losing those games speaks really of the fact that it's perhaps not of the of the level, but again it depends on agendas of individual football clubs. And the, the move to increase more pre season friendlies, I think this is really significant and it, it ties in with the earlier section about the 39th game and the move to have a, a quinquennial which is an unnecessary word but just in a tweet i had to save the characters so that's why i went for that word um a premier league summer event which again ties in with the 39th game proposal it's kind of a, a modern manifestation or reincarnation of of that idea and i i think that was only a sleep that was never dead that idea and it will be back and although that document from the Telegraph doesn't say as much, that will certainly be located globally. League One and League Two not required to have academies. Now, academy status there are. Um, I won't go into this because I don't have time. But there are particular criteria that clubs have to fulfil in order to, to have their uh, academy status kind of protected, ratified uh, nationally. And it's become increasingly difficult for some clubs to have academies at all to have. Um, any kind of youth um, systems, and some clubs have opted just to not have them. Um, you, you've seen some quite high-profile examples of, of clubs, you know, opting to to reduce their their youth team expenditures and infrastructures. And for certain clubs, like that's how they exist. It's not just about match day revenues. You know, I put this in the historical context, hence the you know be, the beginning part of this lecture, and I, I really did that to also make a point that for many EFL clubs their business model is based on producing players and selling them in order to maintain profitability um, and stay afloat and maybe even progress up the ranks and that isn't just for, for English football, you look at you know the Ajax Porto models over the past 4 or 5 years how can we win the league, stay in the Champions League and make money effectively and that's one, one aspect that they've sort of to do, you know. Look at who Ajax have sold over the past um, four summers. They haven't just gone right. We got to the Champions League semi final. Nearly got the final. Let's sell everyone. It, it happened over the over a few windows. The last last two or three windows. The next part is twenty four clubs in the championship. So so that slightly reduces the football league in its in its entirety. So it would go and only really because the Premier League has too fewer clubs. So. It wouldn't change the football league really, but it would mean that there were two fewer clubs in the entire pyramid from the from the four. So it would it would take two, Nas- um, league two clubs basically, and put it in the national league, which in theory would make the national league a bit stronger. And there were proposals to redevelop the national league, um, to to go as a, maybe even league three, which could could have happened, you know, and pre COVID. There's certainly the appetite in some quarters for that, but it's never quite had the traction necessary. And whether it's in everyone's interests to have a league three or not is, is certainly um, up for debate. If you move on from there, which is totally unique, by the way, this isn't the case in any other domestic league that they would have. And you know, I was previously mentioned five national leagues uh, divisions within uh, a single pyramid, uh, and after that, regionalised. So more control of digital platforms for clubs and I think that's that's another element that's that's becoming really significant and that's, that's going to be. Clubs want to be able to show what they want on their website. At the moment on on Liverpool's website, if you want to watch certain footage, yeah I mean you can't do it live because that would be an infringement of of broadcasting, even on the club's own T V channel. Um, they do have like an LFC Go, which is a kind of subscription for the website, and certain content produced kind of on YouTube and stuff like that goes through this subscription. So we've got a global consumption of website content, which isn't live football. So it's broader than the picture that is when we when the club plays once or twice a week. So to have greater control over the digital platforms, basically can be monetised, and that's why clubs you're interested in it control means not it's not just about power in fact it's not centrally about power even it's 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 about revenue increases the um, financial fair play to align with uefa which um, yeah given the man city case and I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about that but an alignment with uefa would be popular with some clubs certainly for for many others they'd look at financial fair play and say what does it even mean anymore if you can get a two-year ban, it could be overturned. And Man City may respond to that and say we were treated in ways that other clubs weren't. Which you know I'm not going to comment on whether that was th- the case or not. But certainly, once you have a ruling and it's overturned, it really kind of weakens UEFA's position, and it also weakens financial fair play as an idea. And the future of that certainly is yet unknown, but but uncertain. I would say. I focus on on fans now, so the the twenty pound away tickets to remain, and you know this became really as part of a concerted effort and resistance from fans. There was um, a walkout at Liverpool, which really helped to pave the way for a change in the relationship between the fans and the club. I think Liverpool has been quite successful in employing certain personnel in key areas of the club that have helped to. And re-establish its its identity and its roots, and to have a voice. And I don't say that as a fan, really. I say that knowing some of the people involved, but also really as a re- reflection of of how I see it. it doesn't mean that they're perfect as an institution, and that they've suddenly this you know beacon of socialism and, and local identity. But there's there's elements to the club which perhaps are more successful. But all this followed the the seventy seven pound ticket. So an announcement was made. 2016 that the, the price structure was going to change of season tickets and of match day tickets and the highest match day price was going to increase to £77. Remember I said that the four stands at Liverpool, well the new stand, um, is the most expensive. There's a historical differentiation between where you watch football on different parts of the ground and perhaps clash and also the cost of tickets and demographics as well to a degree. So this new stand... It cost a lot of money to recoup that, to make money, to increase matchday revenues. Let's increase the price of tickets. It's a fairly obvious commercial reality, I suppose. But because they went to a point of, of no return from, from Liverpool fans' point of view, and had they not done that, who knows what might have happened in the future. But Liverpool basically protested in a game against Sunderland when there was a, a deal that Liverpool fans would walk out after 77 minutes. And many did. And you would probably argue that a lot of those were were local fans and and maybe traditional kind of loyal fans and is that having a pop at those who stayed 100% yes it is but that's uh, that's my personal opinion so that 77 walkout just so happened that Liverpool were 2-0 up at the time and ended up drawing the game 2-0 so it, it did have a nice um, consequence to that even though it's strange to call um, turning three points into one for your team nice um, so the club decided to to basically freeze prices from then on, they they, they realised that this was just a bad PR stunt and Liverpool's had plenty of those, even under the American owners, we think of you know, Luis Suarez and various things like that. Um, this was a, an issue that, that they wanted to get right. Liverpool have, have a slight habit of getting loads of things right at the moment and they're making a glaring error and the £77 ticket was one such relatively recently. You've also got the move to, to Fairlow staff before there was a kind of resistance to that as well in the summer in the context of, of Covid so the £20 for away tickets to remain is is significant and for for away fans but there's no mention of home fan price maximum of what uh, fans can be charged and they never will because no Premier League club will entertain that because they have a, a layered pricing system of different entities of, of corporate um, right to Liverpool the cheapest seat which is Usually a, a cock ticket, especially for the League Cup. So the door to remain open on, on safe standing, which is the phrase that I've used there, not not the Telegraph. But this really, and Mark Turner at Southampton Solent University, is really the expert in this respect. And read his his current work on that. Just uh, put his name into Google Scholar with safe standing and you'll, you'll come up with some, some gems from, from an academic point of view. And he's argued long and hard about a position on, on safe standing. And there are people for whom it's in their interest to to be uh, pro-safe standing. It's quite a contentious issue at Liverpool, given the Hillswood tragedy. But uh, many Liverpool fans uh, that I know that go home and away with Liverpool are certainly in favour of the choice to be able to safely stand. And a reminder that in the Taylor report, to quote it, standing is not intrinsically unsafe. And personally, I would argue that standing in seated accommodation is more dangerous than standing in a rail seating arrangement which is associated with with safe standing and that might have a, a bit of an, an impact on on capacities it won't change it dramatically but it might have an impact depending on on the number of of seats being transferred and um, UEFA don't have it as part of their regulations so there has to be the possibility to to change from one to the other fairly easily Any, anyway with safe standing does so uh, Germany, does. Germany never in, introduced standing because they never outlawed it so it was always part of German football to have standing but it, it was reintroduced at Celtic Park for, for European games it, it have, all, all fans obviously have to be in seated accommodation although they don't sit down for, for obvious reasons relating to the participatory dynamics of British football so I think that opening the door and making it it's really been placed in the at the feet of the of, of the government, and I don't think yet there's enough appetite to to have it. There's been some uh, Labour ministers who've expressed support for it, and I think at the time when it might be a political win for the Tory party, it might be considered. But it was under a uh, a Conservative government that the move to All Seater Stadium became part of English football culture um, from from the top two flights of English football from 1994 onwards. So whether that will change or not, I think watch this space. But I think the more it becomes evident that it's possible to do so safely, and if there is a political win to be made from the ruling power of the day, I think it is certainly possible. And I do think it will happen at some point, although I don't think we're quite there yet. Most centrally is to so this is the way allocations to be to be three thousand or eight percent, whichever is higher. Now, if I'm honest. When I was writing the tweet, that's the first thing I wrote, and then I thought, oh, "I have to stop thinking as a Liverpool fan and start thinking as an analyst for a minute and a scholar of football." Because eight percent of the first thing I did was, "Well, what's the biggest grounds?" And at Man United, seventy-seven thousand two hundred and fifty is their capacity. So, what's eight percent of that? Well, that's six thousand two hundred and twenty seats, which is basically double the allocation that fans get when they go to Old Trafford for a league game. So, we have this slightly unusual system in 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 English football in that it's for a premier league level it's usually 3 2 to 3000 it's never really more than 3 depending on the club everyone misses blackburn rovers and they stay in the premier league because you've got the entire two-tiered stand behind the goal they used to get uh, 6 7000 seats at blackburn rovers because they wouldn't sell those seats otherwise but it gave it gave the away team enormous advantage i always felt and blackburn with with relegation and um, at least that made Part of, of an impact, although Blackburn fans might point to the venues and mismanagement and financial and uh, recruitment issues as being more central to that. Anyway, moving back to to Old Trafford, if you have an FA Cup match there, then it, the it goes on a percentage, so you will get a bigger number, of you know, higher allocation of away funds um, at the big grounds uh, for the FA Cup fixture. So when you get a big team in the FA Cup away, it's not just oh we get to 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 play a big team it's for the fans you can you can kind of take over and end. so I can see a reality where if, if we're honest Man United at home, particularly when they're not winning things, the atmosphere kinda of dropping quite quite a lot. they've made some efforts to, to to redress that with a singing section, but I can see Man United in that structure being outsung by away fans quite often. Although at the same time Man United fans who are for me more Atmospheric away from home than they are at home. Part of the the consequence of success is the is the dilution of the, the traditional supporters and the you know inclusion of of kind of non, non local often and uh, you know tourist type match day fans, which kind of dilutes the atmosphere a little bit that Man United fans and Liverpool fans will be very familiar with. And if you increase the number of um, away fans, then you, it's basically a, a bit of an unfair fight in terms of the. The, the fight for atmosphere uh, control at football matches, which is a slightly strange phrase, but, but you know what I mean. So that would make a huge change, I think, for the bigger clubs. So Bournemouth, who, you know, I, I don't miss them from the Premier League, just on the, their allocation of, of tickets, because it was always very difficult to get a ticket at Bournemouth, just because the numbers of away seats available uh, in a stadium that small so that is a big change that's been proposed. That, that would also have considerable implications for policing. If you've got six thousand Leeds fans going to Old Trafford next season, which you know may not happen, COVID dependent, etc. But and, and certainly this isn't you know a proposal that's going to just happen. But let's consider the possibility for a moment. Then the police match the control of that game, which is already a. A fiercely contested match, Manchester United against Leeds United and other rivalries. It just makes it far more difficult for police to police. And if you look at what's happened in Scotland, the old fame game, as it might once have been known, Rangers vs Celtic, there has been a kind of tit-for-tat reduction of allocations for away fans. And that's been more in, in keeping with where the trajectory is going, is to reduce allocations and on certain away tickets to try and combat standing in seated areas, it sometimes says persistent standing is not allowed and subsequent allocations for away fans has been reduced the following season as a result of people standing persistently. So I think watch this space on that. Now, the the picture top right, which I uh, introduced earlier, which is of the the various uh, executives of leading clubs, Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal. That's, that's a reminder, really. I think that the power plays are nothing new to English football, but that at an executive level, people talk, and there are networks and relationships, and those networks are absolutely imperative. Now, when it comes to a central body of fans... The Football Supporters Federation, and I I know some some people that represent the organisation, I I have a lot of respect for them, but they've struggled as an organisation to be a central voice for English fans generally because you just struggle with the nature of rivals uh, getting in a room. One of the reasons why we pay what we pay to watch football is because we haven't collectively opposed it. Germans are fantastic at looking at our mistakes and saying, well, we're not doing that. We're not having Monday night football, throw tennis balls on the pitch. We're not having expensive season tickets. We'll we'll boycott and we'll do it collectively, and they're visible and they're audible, and the authorities listen to them and respond. And also, they don't want a system where they're kind of losing and diluting their own atmospheres in the way this happened in some grounds in England. So I, I think those those relationships between key personnel are only going to get more significant, and the fact that this is something that's come out from Liverpool and Man United collectively, and it's a consequence of discussions at that level over the past three years, irrespective of, of COVID. This is COVID's just been the opportunity in the, the Trojan horses, as, as Keiran Maguire said, to introduce some of these uh, proposals. And you know the Premier League itself was really a consequence of, of a power grab. And you know I remember Fierce objections to the Premier League as an idea. And it was really centrally uh, connected to, to broadcasting and, and Sky Sports and then moving to that market away from what was initially a, a fairly unsuccessful attempt to, to broadcast uh, cricket. And the recognition from Rupert Murdoch that, that footballers comes first, second and third almost in the, in this country. And the deal to move the, a Premier League independent from the EFL was the most substantial change in English football in my lifetime and I think this is the most notable proposal that we've had since and networks certainly played their part and and, and will do now but the, the rivals that we talk about they need each other and they use each other you know Real Madrid and Barcelona are examples of this and when when Barcelona had a referendum for independence a few years ago and around 90% of the people who voted voted for independence and the, the response of the Spanish government was threatening Barcelona from expulsion from La Liga as well as various political and policing measures should we say put in place but the reality is that Real Madrid without Barcelona just it really doesn't have the same ring to it and the, the two definitely need each other almost as much as Rangers and Celtic I think you could take Liverpool and Man United out of the Premier League and it would still be a successful league because you've got a number of other teams in in the Premier League. But it's probably unique in that respect. If you take Dortmund and and Bayern Munich, if you take Paris Saint-Germain and maybe Lyon, maybe Saint-Étienne, maybe Marseille, depending on, on when the conversation is happening, out of the French League. If you take Juve and... Maybe AC Milan out of Serie Those other leagues would would really struggle. But I think the Premier League will be established because it's such a strong competition. Because it's got so many dominant clubs, and so many powerful clubs. And the top six because this isn't just about Liverpool and Man United. The top six is a changeable beast. And you know what if Everton defy expectations under under probably the third best manager in the world, Ancelotti and. And getting to the Champions League or even better this, this year. At what point do they become considered a top six club? And I know they've been mentioned as one of the, the historical clubs in this, this report by, by The Telegraph. But it, there is a, a change in nature of what we consider to be the elite clubs. And, and that can, can change over time. If you want to demonstrate power and influence, you affect change. You know, UEFA have known this for a long time. Why the rules keep changing? Why the competitions develop a little bit time after time. Okay, it's sold as improvements to the game. It might be, and nearly always is, about economic incentive. It's quite often about power and about reminding people who have it and about maintaining power and effecting change. So I think Rick Parry backing the plans, I think, is is important, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're all um, championship clubs would endorse it, in fact many clubs will be against it I think beyond the top six it's difficult to see who would be in favour of these plans because it effectively means that they're guaranteed less money so why would they vote for it has been one kind of central issue but you know, not everyone voted for the Premier League and it happened so I don't think it's impossible that a version of what we're seeing in these proposals could happen and elements of it I think probably will I think the evolution of competition and the broadcasting is inevitable. The, the collective bargain and power of clubs is one thing, but I think it's likely that individual clubs are going to want to capitalise on their own economic potential. And I think, certainly in the case of the big six, if you want to call it that, there is certainly um, that position in the boardroom. But I, I think, importantly, that the dualism of domestic competition and international competitions, that, that should be maintained. So uh, I know that this is put in the context of it, of it being a, a move to a, a kind of European Super League in all but name. Almost kind of replacing domestic football. Even though I think there's more of an appetite for that in La Liga than in the Premier League. I actually don't think that that the Premier League clubs and even the big six out of the Premier League really want that. I don't think they want to have a, a situation where they don't have domestic football. But I do think they want more regular Matches in a competition that's a European league, and I think Dave Weber has, has been tweeting recently, he's put this in the context of you know, from a critical lens um, of, of it being basically about a power grab and the formation of, of a European super league, which is a, a pretty understandable take, take to have on this. And it's pretty important that we maintain that dualism to have both Premier League domestic football. And I would include domestic competitions in that, even though the future of the League Cup and the FA Cup look a little uncertain. Certainly, the prize money of those competitions plays an important role in how they are viewed. But they're not just viewed by the top six, uh, they're viewed by the entire league and, and the entire football pyramid, respectively. What fans want is to see the teams play against their rivals, and they want that more. Then they want to see the Champions League. That's a position that people who are opposed to this will rely on. It's not necessarily what I think. It's just a, almost playing devil's advocate and, and presenting a, a position. So the maintaining of rivalries is important. Now, those rivalries are no less important just because we've made changes in how we manage fans in combat and huganism. In fact, there's, there's different forms in which those ritual aggressions are played out. But certainly those rivalries are, in some cases, more intense, but certainly no less in, in, intense than they have been in the past. And to deny fans the opportunity to see matches, if fans didn't care about Premier League games, Premier League games wouldn't sell out. And the rivalry that Liverpool has on a European front, you might think oh, I was at Real Madrid because they've won more Champions Leagues or AC Milan. But really, the rivalry that Liverpool has is with Everton and with Man United and with Man City, and Arsenal, and other clubs in the, in the English League. So, for as long as fans think that, and wake up to what might be suggested, and seek to express a unified voice, because I think it's important fans start to express some concerns about any move towards a European Super League, which replaces domestic football, or at least prioritises it more so than it is already the broadcasting changes is, is inevitable as, as i've said i think there'll be more possibilities for clubs to sell broadcasting rights to their own matches and i think the roots to these competitions should not be cut off it's really important there's a pyramid i think one of the the weaknesses of the mls and the states and there's been some friction or some resistance to to this system is having a closed membership system where you can't kind of get promoted so how do you move up into into the MLS, well, you know, current structure says you can't. There are franchises which can be voted in for acceptance or not. And th- that really kind of limits the, the potential for growth to a degree. Some experts in American sports might disagree with that. They would argue that it works perfectly well in other in other sports and, and will do in in, in soccer, in, M- in the MLS. I uh, say will, I mean, the MLS is... is Founded following the World Cup as part of the legacy package in 1984, but it's kind of been reinvigorated by uh, some of the new franchises size that we developed and it's becoming more, more viable and more successful and more popular. But it doesn't have relegation, and I think relegation, which happens in, in nearly all domestic leagues in the world, is, is an essential part of its philosophy, of its structure, of its excitement, of its potential. And I think it should be here to stay. Does anyone have any questions?
1: Trying to think of a way to, to frame this argument. The Premier League, over time, has gotten weaker as a product.
0: I mean, what metrics would you base that assessment on?
1: And, and maybe not so much the Premier League, but definitely... Um, the championship League one and League two. And when I say maybe it's gotten a bit weaker, as someone who is uh, an international fan, there is this uh, very much so like an obsession with um, domestic fans and keeping, and this isn't an insult or anything like that, but it does seem like an obsession with keeping the fan base undiluted and separating international fans and calling them tourists. And not trying to group them in like and say, you know, you're not a fan because you're not from the locality. And I mean, these football clubs now are so much more than football clubs. They're they're (laughs) huge international brands and businesses,
0: you know. Let me, let me come in on that because I, I, you know, we've had this conversation before in versions of it, and I agree with you. You know, Man United took the words football club out of their logo as a reflection that they are bigger than a club. Barcelona, as a football club, um, have more than a club written on their the, the stadium. So, yeah, football clubs are, are big businesses at the, the upper end. And what English fans or some English fans have seen is the dilution. And the threat of their cultures. Now, that sounds a little bit xenophobic, um, and there's probably a trace of that within this, but I'd also see it as a recognition that English football fandom is, is unique and is individual to, to place and community. And most scholars see the future of, of football as, as being a kind of almost a part of a resistance movement. With the global versus the local, it doesn't always necessarily have to play out like that. In fact, in, in, in Liverpool, some of our most well respected fans are from Norway and they go absolutely everywhere with the club and understand local people in, in some respects better than people from the peripheries of the city. So it's, it's not as if there's always, uh, you know, kind of antagonism and, like you say, a separating of, of the local and the global. Uh, but some clubs do it better than others. If you look at Leon, they've got... Uh, sorry, uh, Saint-Étienne, which is the, the derby that, um, that, that, that Leon have, a big club, particularly in the 1970s. They've got two cops that are opposite each other, two ends of the stand. And rather than kind of dilute the atmosphere that's produced from those, they will sell tickets in a tier built above one of the cops to, to kind of deliberately maintain an element of the culture. So... It, what you're saying is reflects some of the difficulties and the, and the frictions faced by football clubs and football fans. In that football club, football clubs want to be welcoming, they want to they want to monetise the interest that global fans have by enabling them to get tickets. And then there's that kind of competition for tickets and that position where some local fans, or you know. English fans, whatever you want to call them, think, well, who gets the tickets first? Should there be prioritisation? The tickets become more expensive depending on where you live and, and things like that? So I think there are different ways of, of looking at it and it will probably depend on what your agenda is and you'll probably see it through the lens of a global fan or a local fan or a, a club official or whatever it is, um, a, a broadcasting employee, whatever your, your kind of position is. And I think all of them exist at the same time. And, you know, the idea of what a fan is... I mean, we've been told for generations that hooligans aren't fans. And hooligans themselves will yeah. probably say that's not the case. Some people will say you're a fan if you say you're a fan. Mm-hmm. Scholars like Julian Lotti have produced typologies of fans to understand different types of people and behaviours which might get different labels accordingly. But what has been created in an extensive industry with, a, with a, a huge national network of clubs, some of those at the higher level have a committed fans and, a, and, an, and an appetite for global fans to consume the English game and I think that's only going to grow I do
1: agree with what, you, with what you said but don't you think that the fandom of English football fans is capable of evolution is capable of changing the scope or the periphery
0: I mean culture by it's almost very definition is not, it's not static, it's like language, it's It's fluid it changes relative to contemporary conditions and experiences so there's a maintaining of a degree of tradition and an embracing of of new of new avenues i think that's what culture is and that's what fandom is it's it's when it's when you don't have any allowance for the maintaining of the tradition that's when there's a that's when there's cause for concern and and you know part of i mean we're getting off topic a little bit and talking about uh, project restart, project restart. That was a different project, wasn't it? About project big picture. Um, so maybe something we'll take the next question to be a bit more about um, about about the big picture issues um, connected to the, the, the piece in the Telegraph and the ideas uh, that have come out of Liverpool and Man United lately. But I, I do think there is, like you say, um, potential for evolution of football culture, and I do think that's what makes football culture what it is does anyone else want to join the, the debate
1: so I agree with things that you say is inevitable um, but do you think that
0: this like in your opinion is a, a good idea and what are the reasons <laughs> that make you think that um, I'm, I'm concerned by anything which which wants to change the structure of of leagues. I think the the broadcasting issue. Like I I've never had a, a Sky Sports subscription. You know because I'm I'm kind of opposed to the policies and, and the politics of Rupert Murdoch. That's a personal decision that I make. So for me, how football is broadcast. Yeah, I would have no problem with with clubs doing it on it on an individual basis, if. It allowed for the protection of the collective and I think the Premier League as a product must be, must be protected and I do worry about the big clubs being allowed to have too much power in, in what would become a, a kind of breakaway league I wouldn't support that and I, I, I would be opposed to it and the, the thing with presenting so many changes at once in one lecture and in one article and in one proposal is that you almost don't know where to start so is it a good idea? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's 50 questions, isn't it, for the, for the 50 points? Some of them, I think, yeah, 100%. Some of them, like, 100% not. So there are things that I'm kind of in favour of. That I, I also think some of them are just not been thought, thought through. Like, let's have, you know, 6,500 Scouts at Old Trafford. So I, I think I think there's some things that they, they probably need to think about. And I'm not saying that they haven't thought about these issues, but there's probably some of these things are, are perhaps... Kind of been left behind. If I was an exponent of of women's football, if I was Alex Colvin who studies the professionalisation of the women's game, I'd be a little bit concerned about what this might mean for women's football, where that might put the women's game, who has ownership, control, power, um, investments in that context, what it means for broadcasting, and what should be an emerging and growing market. So I suppose the answer, Kieran, is uh, I agree with a few elements, and I'd, I'd probably, if I was voting, I'd probably vote for a few things, but I will never vote for a European Super League because I, because I love the Premier League, not the Premier League as, a, as an organisation, but the idea of a league structure for the top flight of English football connected to its divisions below it in a pyramid. Anyone else? One of the people that you mentioned from one of the newspaper articles
1: said that it wasn't it's not a bad idea, it just needs tweaks. So from what you're saying, I think that's kind of where you're sat when, when it first broke out and I was reading about it, that's where I was, because definitely the league's lower needs, needs support. Um, but do you think it is more likely to happen now because of that, because of coronavirus and because they actually do need more support? Do you think that would be a, play a big part in whether it gets approved or not?
0: I, th- I think one of, one of the main problems of, of English football is also its main strength in that there's just so many clubs, and I just think there's an, an unsustainable number of football clubs in English football. Now, if you're a fan of one of the clubs that goes bust, you don't like that statement, because you think, well, I'm, I'm from Berry or Macersfield or whatever it is, and, or I'm a Bolton fan of Leeds, whoever's had financial problems. But you know, if you look at a financial model, if you look at what can be regulated, especially within the current climate, which who knows how long COVID is, is going to be an intrusion for, I actually think that a main problem with English football is the number of clubs. And I'm not saying I want clubs to go under, but I I just think it's not sustainable. And and Paul Widder has talked about inequality in this context, and he's he's quite right, in that this will only create more inequality. Um, Covid will only make it harder for football clubs to operate at a lower level, whether they've got fans in or not, but particularly for, for clubs that rely heavily, and most of them do, in the lower end on, on gate receipts. It's only gonna get worse. And yeah, some of these changes are about readdressing the issue of, of, of payments to, to lower down. But I'm also concerned about like how long that how long that situation would, would last. Like there's only really agreements in place for this season and last season. Are we gonna to get to May and suddenly COVID's finished? Round the world? No. So I, I think COVID is going to have its own legacies and I think the lower down the pyramid you go, the more of a problem clubs are going to be faced with and the, the very unstable environment of English football, very reliant on certain revenue streams, has, has really come to fore. It's like if the internet went down tomorrow or you can't, you can't stream anything, what would the world do without the internet? You know, people can't go into football grounds, what the football clubs do without supporters paying money on for match day revenues. So we'd hope the internet's gonna go down. We hope fans will soon be allowed back into games when it's safe for them to do so. But I just don't see an outcome being positive and I see clubs folding this season. So not very positive as an answer in terms of optimism, but I see I see more problems than solutions. And uh, in terms of whether this is something that can just be tweaked, I think some of the proposals are are pretty dangerous for football league clubs and for clubs lower in in the Premier League than the top six. And some of the responses from those clubs like West Ham signify as much. And will Turkey's vote for Christmas? I'm not sure they will. Any other questions?
1: Yeah, I, I just kind of want to touch on that uh, point that you and Kieran just made about these sort of payments paid to the lower league clubs. The fact that they, the way that they worded it sort of seemed like one-off payments or in a sense, uh,
0: it sort of feels like hush money. You know <laughs> what I mean? It sort of feels like, take this money, be happy, let us do what we want to do, you know? Yeah, and, and and the kind of, and Rick Paddy seems to have supported to, to remove the, the parachute payments as well, and if I was Norwich City or West Brom, you know these clubs that kind of yo-yo between the leagues, then maybe I'd be a slightly less concerned. But if I was a club that that kind of wanted to have a pop it going up, knowing that you'll probably come back down and you might not come back up, I'd be a bit more concerned. So it depends where you sit in the in the trajectory of, of English football and it depends what what the structure of your club is and the status of your club i think you're going to respond to these financial proposals very differently depending on how you budget and where you're coming from and and where you see your trajectory over the next five years and what potential risks whether it's relegation or or anything else um, to that status so thanks very much for all your questions and um, i know it was Quite a an unusual session in that I just basically talked at you for an hour and a half a lot to go through, and I you know probably could have done double that as you could probably tell, given that what's been proposed is I think at a unique point in time that it feels like a moment really for English football that doesn't mean to say that that we'll necessarily see changes come in as a result of of these plans, but I think certainly clubs are going to have to form positions, communicate them and There's going to have to be decisions made accordingly which are going to affect the industry, going to affect other domestic leagues and affect other clubs within the pyramid and fans of all of the above. Thanks very much for joining us.